You're listening to the Scale and Culture podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our team is excited to kick off this fall season with a stacked guest list, so buckle up. In this season premiere episode, our guest is John Ferguson, Chief HR Officer at NASCAR. John oversees NASCAR human resources and provides strategic leadership around talent acquisition, employee engagement, and culture development to support and engage employees across more than 20 office and racetrack locations in the U.S. We actually recorded this episode the day before the Coke Zero Sugar 400 in Daytona. For nearly a decade, John served in HR roles at Monumental Sports and Entertainment in Washington, D.C. He also serves on the alumni board of directors for Furman University, UNCF Orlando Leadership Council, and Durham Success Summit Advisory Council. In 2022, John was named to the Daytona Beach News Journal's annual 40 Under 40 list and Savoy Magazine's most influential Black executives in corporate America. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and John discuss emotional intelligence in hybrid environments and key strategies for all leaders to use, how to scale knowledge across the organization to new and existing employees, the power of yet and the growth mindset, quiet quitting, and how to provide psychological safety in the work environment, and best practices and strategies for people starting a new leadership position where everything is new and you have none of that organizational knowledge built up. John lays out two great questions to ask existing staff before implementing any new change. Before diving into today's episode, please take a moment to click subscribe and rate the podcast. It would mean the world to us, spreading the word and helping our podcast appear in more searches by listeners interested in organizational culture. And if you're interested in learning more about our books or the Scaling Culture Masterclass, please head to our website, scalingculture.org. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett. And today we have John Ferguson, the Chief HR Officer at NASCAR. John, welcome. Uh, hey, Ron, happy to be here today. I'm, I'm, I'm checking in live from Daytona Beach, Florida, which is the birthplace of NASCAR. The sun is shining and it's actually race weekend. So there's a lot of energy in Daytona today. So, you know, and, and actually because NASCAR is such a big thing, I feel like I should do a proper like, welcome, John Ferguson. Like that might be now we're good, right? There you go. <laughs> Start your engines. We got to get you down here to a race. You can you can really get you can you can do some work for us. Down I could here. do that. I could do it. And so are we going to hear the cars in the background today? You probably won't today. I have the best noise canceling headphones in. Uh, they are loud, but they're not as loud as you may think. Uh, I think the the residents of Chicago may feel differently when the street course comes to downtown Chicago uh, next year. But for right now, we're in a good spot. Well, I'm surprised to see earbuds. I thought you'd have cannons. No, I do have cannons for when we go over there. But, right. you know, I, I tell you, it's, it really depends on how close you are to the cars to how much the noise right. will impact you. Uh, but also, maybe I've gotten a little used to it in, in the year that I've been with the company. So it's it's a fine balance, but you will need some ear protection. So funny, I, I don't want to get off topic, but it's I, I was just thinking about this the other day. I'm wearing earbuds a lot, and I feel like, am I annoying people? Because sometimes they don't know if I'm on a call. And so there's this new culture of like, hey, are you, are you on a call? <laughs> like people are doing that now. Well, I, I would say you might annoy me, uh, yeah. especially because I'm like, I, I, I typically will see it as I don't want to be bothered. So when I'm flying and traveling mm-hmm. a lot, I'm popping these things in when I'm trying to just focus in on something else. Sometimes they're completely off, but it, it, it is a distractor or a preventer from people engaging. So it depends on what you're going for. So this is, is that known, by the way, is that known etiquette? If your earphones are in, leave me alone. Is that kind of like a, you should assume that etiquette? 
that's how I interpret it. I would more than likely kind of wave at you and say, hey, can you can you talk? Hit you with one of those hand signals. Can you talk? Uh, Because I'm assuming you're on a call or listening to music and you are you're signaling that that I am focused on something else. I need to practice that type of behavior because I'm pretty nervy. I'm like, just grab people. Like, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I think the younger generation, they they kind of always walk around with one in. And that's so right. I, I've seen that there's just one. So I think that's like a half signal. Like you can talk to me, but I may be on a something else. <laughs> that's the best. So, so, John, look, I was I loved uh, even I was excited seeing your name and doing some research on you and your your background. I thought fascinating. Really, I think you're our first guest that. Uh, has been involved with sports, but wasn't on the athlete side. We certainly had athletes, but you know, it was interesting because, and, and I feel, um, I don't know how I feel about this, but when I, when I looked at your background, seeing that your role was really this, you know, chief people officer in, I think it's momentum sports. You were there for nine or 10 years before NASCAR, correct? Monumental sports. Yes. Located in DC. Yeah. Like I didn't know. And I really, uh, maybe I took this for granted that sports places had chief people officers. I just was like, Oh, that's interesting. They're doing it, you know, as well. Cause I was thinking as corporately. So, yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Was that, can you go back to momentum? And when you started, were you, were you first to that role? Was that new? I'm just very curious. And, and even before you do that, give us your background quickly. We we've introduced you properly, but give us your, who is John Ferguson? Go, let's start there. And I'll make sure we get back to this. Okay, sounds good. So, you know, John Ferguson is is a native of Greenville, South Carolina, born and raised uh, and left the the smaller city to go to D.C. right out of undergrad. So landed there, started my HR career working for Hyatt Hotels. Meanwhile, Ron, I definitely thought that I was going to be working on Capitol Hill. I was a poli sci major like HR was this thing I was interested in possibly because I was a student who was always in student council, student body president in high school. I was like, okay, think about your transferable skills here. Hmm, HR could be something, but I want to go into politics. Well, the universe had something else aligned for me and I landed my first opportunity in HR with Hyatt Hotels. Um, And that was truly a foundation for me. Sorry, was that something you applied for when you said the universe gave it to you? Someone just said, hey, you should do this. How did it? How did that come up? Oh, well, we can go a little longer into that story. So I, I finished undergrad and the economy was bad. Uh, it was tough, tough job market. I received tons of no's. And so I actually applied for a position with Hyatt Hotels just looking for any job at this point because I had moved to DC and had rent to pay, but had no income at this point. Uh, and so I applied for a convention service position, which was setting up tables and chairs. So lo and behold, I go in with my four-year degree and they're like, you're a little old qualified for this. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Like I've been rejected everywhere, either not enough experience or you're overqualified. And so the night before the interview, they had an HR position, HR coordinator role available. And so I so told the recruiter at the moment, I said, well, I actually apply for the HR coordinator position. I'd be interested in that. And she's like, really? And so, you know, light bulbs go off, sirens start to flare. She's like, do you have flexibility to just hang around the day to see where we can get you plugged in? And I hung around and a week later, they offered me my start in HR. So th- that was kind of how the universe put me in a position of applying for this job just as I was doing research for the interview. And, and it came my way and I haven't looked back uh, from HR since. But at the time, did you view this as, <clears throat> look, I'm just going to try this. This is just a, a springboard to get to what I'm going to get to. And then, and then kind of connected with you. I think I didn't know what I didn't know at that time, too. You know, I, I definitely saw it as probably like this is the first job. It's a great place to start your career. Great HR. That's respectable. When I probably was, uh, you know, visualizing HR at that time, I saw it as an opportunity that would have lots of um, 
it was everywhere. HR is everywhere. So you talked about like, why would sports have HR? HR is everywhere. Everywhere you have people, there's going to be someone that's managing that human capital. Uh, and so th that was probably the initial piece. But what I learned quickly after was that passion that I had for, for politics, that passion that I had for being a student leader, student body president, resembled HR in so many ways because I was always in the know before everyone else was. So when you think about HR, sometimes people may say it's like the principal's office. It's not the principal's office, but I am always in the know of what's happening with my organization or other organizations before everyone else is. So that was the piece that I really learned that I valued throughout my career and my uh, K through 12 education. Uh, and so that's that's kind of how I looked at this first opportunity is like I'll be in the know and then I'll see what else comes from there. And what spoke to you? Because that job it sounds like it was a generalist, right? And so you're yes. doing some recruiting, some onboarding, some maybe some interviewing, some scheduling, maybe. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I think what spoke to me was the opportunity to have a bird's eye view to the organization. That is right. what HR provides you with. I could have come in in a sales role and I only would have had this view in sales. But in HR, I could see the total landscape. And so as a, as a, first time job, it allowed me to say, well, is this where I want to be? Or do I possibly want to do sales? Because I've heard what their interviews are like. I've heard what candidates they're picking. Or do I want to do marketing? I've seen some of what the, those candidates look like and what their projects are. Hmm. So it gave me this bird's eye view. Again, it goes back to, to knowing what's happening throughout the organization. Mm. And what was, what was the biggest um, aha moment for you in there of like, wow, I didn't know this, but now I'm in the seat. And, and, I, and I realize this, I always assume this from the outside and mm -hmm. wow, this is very different. Mm. So I'll be transparent. That first year at HR, I did apply for a sales job. I have the <laughs> gift to gab. I uh, and I was, I yeah. Like and so <laughs> I applied, uh, I didn't get it. You know, they were like, oh, we want someone that had more experience. That's the common phrase you get. Uh, and so I, I stuck with HR because it was a growth opportunity. I think my career has really been based in uh, manifesting what you want. And I'll tell you how I got to that because it didn't show up that way uh, for me originally. So when I joined Hyatt as, a, as an hourly employee, I only had my first name on my name tag. It just said John. But on my first week there, I realized some people had their last name. So I was like, why do you have your last name? Like, how do I get my last name? And they said, oh, you have to be a management. And I was like, oh, OK. So I started, you know, casually saying in a, in a very funny manner, like, I need my last name on my name tag. And so what I didn't realize is that I was speaking into existence, my desire for more, my desire for growth, my desire for elevation. And so I'm a firm believer that closed mouths do not get fed. And in so many ways, I was doing that without recognizing I was doing it. So my career growth has really been based in saying, OK, this is where I am seeking the feedback and clarity on what the next steps look like and then what what would that next position or growth opportunity look like uh so that was how i ended up really getting two feet rooted in a foundation of hr and then seeing those opportunities that were presented to me which allowed me to see a path to go upward and onward uh, in the space and was upward and onward for you within hide or momentum was it going to the your next gig uh a balance of both okay. a balance of both and so I, I, I only glanced, but I, I think you were at Momentum for 10 years. Can you tell the listeners what is Momentum? Because it's a pretty, pretty, pretty in-depth organization. Yes. So it's Monumental Sports and Entertainment. Monumental, sorry. Monumental. And you can call it short for MSC. So Monumental Sports and Entertainment is 
is the home of the Washington Capitals, uh, NHL team, WNBA team, Washington Mystics, and the NBA Washington Wizards. We also own multiple uh, arenas and facilities in the DC, Virginia region. Uh, and then in addition to that, we've had AFL teams, we've had esports teams, we've launched a production, uh, internal production team. So it is a, a holding company uh, with all of these different entities. So when I joined the organization in, when was that? 2012, roughly, uh, we were about 300 employees full-time uh, and then another thousand or so part-time arena event staff, seasonal workers. Uh, by the time I left, we had doubled our full-time population and our lines of business had grown tremendously. So it was it was really a great opportunity for me to come in and, and, and take up some leadership space and really learn under a great leader uh, that, that believed in my skills and talents. And so we, we really were able to transform how we were approaching HR from a very sort of hands-on uh, manual process to bring in technology to help us work smarter uh, and, and be able to scale the organization at the same time. And how did, did, was it siloed? Were you just dealing with management and then, and then, you know, cause I'm just visualizing this, you've got management and then you have like part-time staff that are working in arenas, but then you have the teams and the players. Did, did it touch all three pieces and did I miss anything? No, I, we touched all three. So we, we were a shared service across the organization. So from players and their onboarding to their benefits, uh, from our full-time staff to our part-time staff. I was the HR leader that would go work in the box office window. I was the HR leader that would go work with the usher. You know, I, I believe in uh, leading out front and also being a servant leader. So I want to understand all aspects of our business so that as, as, I, as I grow and as we're looking at defining and developing our culture, I need to make sure I understand what those nuances are and what, you know, an entry-level employee, what they may experience uh, versus what uh, the CEO may experience. How did you keep track uh, of the various cultures. And what I mean by that is each team's going to have its own culture, you know, and maybe the corporation has a certain set of values, but the team's going to have a different culture, right? Like, how did you, I don't know, that just seems really messy to me when I just think about it from the outside. Walk me through, how, that, that seems complex. I think you embrace the nuances. Uh, I don't think it has to be so prescriptive in every location or with every team because every team has a different mascot. They have this a whole different sport. Uh, and so I think when you embrace that, but you also have these sort of uh, a roadmap of how we do business. Right. What, are, what, are, what are the core values and the mission of the organization? And then you allow for some flexibility and flair in those spaces. So I think you just embrace it. Are there gonna be differences? Yes. But why does everything need to be exactly the same when the when the, the sport and the teams are gonna be different? So by nature, there's gonna be some 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 flexibility there. So we I say lean into it. And and was it that role that there was a bit of a shift from you know, from a generalist to like, oh, now I'm really bringing the best in people. This is a very different, I'm not, you know, necessarily recruiting them and more strategy. Was that, was that during that time that you had that shift? Yes, that was definitely at Monumental where I was able to sort of, you know, cut my teeth in, in being a leader in the HR space. I came in as an HR manager and left as a vice president uh, of people and culture. Uh, but during that time, I was, you know, put in some positions where you probably had to sink or swim. And I learned how to swim pretty quickly. And so, John, go to, because we talked about this earlier as, a, as an interesting topic, what emotional intelligence. And where did you get your emotional intelligence? Was that from your childhood? Where did you sharpen your saw from, from an emotional intelligence standpoint? Oh, that is a skill that I practice and keep on learning every day. Um, I think 
I think you have to be rooted in empathy with emotional intelligence. Um, and I, I think there's a quote by Maya Angelou that always stands out to me. It says, people don't remember what you say, they remember how you made them feel. And that is so true. That is so true, delivery and wording, but they remember how you made them feel. So I try to lead myself and my, my, my purpose and my mission sort of rooted in that, that, that quote there. Um, I think emotional intelligence is some, it, is, it comes with a level of self-awareness too. And there were some moments where I lacked some emotional intelligence. And so having good people around me to offer that feedback so that I could be aware. Um, and then also as I've grown in the practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you, you start to look around, you start tracing things. Okay, what am I tracking around the people around in this room or in this space? Uh, and so I think self-awareness, social awareness, uh, empathy, giving people grace uh, are, are key components to emotional intelligence. So if you want to grow as a leader, I think that is critical. Uh, to have uh, practice in that space, have awareness in that space, and know that you never stop learning in that space. Emotional intelligence, I don't think it's something that you just say, hey, I've got it and I nailed it. No, right. no, it's a muscle that you got to keep exercising. And what about, the, what about the energy side of that, reading energy and, and mm -hmm. putting out energy? What are your thoughts? How does that come into play? I think that may have been something that I've been able to sort of nurture throughout my life, uh, reading people. Um, and I think that was something that I was able to sort of understand the dynamics of people and really uh, sort of leverage that muscle when I joined NASCAR. So I'm coming up on my one year anniversary with NASCAR, but I came into a brand new space, a brand new sport. I wasn't necessarily familiar with motorsports prior to joining the organization, but what I was familiar with was managing the human capital, managing human resources, people and culture. So again, transferable skill, no matter what industry, HR right. is, is gonna be able to come in and be effective, ideally if you have the right leader. We're talking about emotional intelligence. So so just just because I'm curious where I was gonna go with this too is the things that you're talking about, I think are spot on, right? You can you have to continue to sharpen yourself, build, whether it's from a self-awareness side, compassion side, all these different things. But I'm curious your thoughts because I, I I'm I'm mixed on going back to the office and how you build emotional intelligence with your not when you're not working with people as much and you're not around energy. What are your thoughts on that? In this hybrid be, environment, John. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like I, 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 in the hybrid environment, you have to be intentional with that. So as a as a leader in an organization, you need to make sure that you're scheduling those check-ins with the staff that are possibly not coming to the office as frequently. Uh, and, and being intentional with making sure when you're onboarding people that they are set up with a partner to help guide them through that process, uh, but also a partner that they can build a rapport with. And so they can ask those questions that no one else is able to provide, especially if they're not able to sort of soak in that water cooler talk. One of the things that we've done here at, here at NASCAR is we, we decided to do coffee talks. And so it's a virtual coffee talk. We do it two times a month and it's just, hey, here's the coffee talk announcement. You sign up, we pull everybody into a Teams meeting and then we break them out into breakout rooms. There is no formula. It's just like whoever comes in, you're randomly assigned to rooms. So you never know who's going to be in that room with you. Uh, so cool. you may come into a coffee talk and you're in there with, you know, Steve Phelps, our president, and you're in there with uh, someone that just got hired in marketing, et cetera. So it's a group of three to four and we're just talking. And so I've learned so much about people. I have a coworker that's on my team and she's like, in the pandemic, I've started doing some home renovations, but I've been doing them myself. So I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I laid towel in my kitchen. I changed the bathroom toilet. And I'm like, I never would have known this in just our normal sort of 
course of talking. Uh, so it's been really good. I also met another lady who's in our uh, at our Phoenix track. She's like, oh, I read 52 books a year consistently. I was like, well, if I ever need to phone a friend for some trivia, I am calling you. Absolutely. So so is this something new that was implemented since the pandemic? It's got to be. Yes. Coffee talk is relatively new uh, because there was there was feedback received of like people are feeling uh, not uh, sometimes not connected. Uh, and so also from my perspective of being new to NASCAR, there was a notion of how do I connect with people that I haven't had a chance to see face to face yet? And so this allows me to, I, I enjoy the coffee talks because if I get to a new group, I'm like, hey, how long have you been here? If I meet a new hire, uh, you know, what are some things we could have done differently in your onboarding to, to help you kind of understand the culture or, or best practices? So it's, it's been really good, uh, but it's been effective and it's easy to implement. It's not cumbersome to make it happen. What was the biggest shift for you, John, going from where you were to NASCAR? Because those have to be two different cultures, too corporate culture. So in the last year, what was the like, okay, wow, the, the, you know, you always say, here's what you know, here's what you don't know, here's what you don't know that you don't know, you know, what was the biggest challenge for you in shifting organizations? And yes, thank you. That, that triggered me to where I was, I was wanting to go earlier. Uh, the biggest thing that I didn't realize until I got here was the amount of institutional knowledge I had uh, sort of assumed at monumental sports. Uh, I like being there for almost two years. You you knew everything. Like I know why there's a dent in the wall right there. I understand how we got here. Uh, that in many ways was my superpower. Um, and when I got to NASCAR, I no longer had that superpower. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm coming into business meetings. There's tons of acronyms in NASCAR. I'm like, okay, well, I ask a lot of questions. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, but it was also a point for me as an HR leader to realize if I'm feeling this we got to make sure that we are able to break this down for other new hires as they come in so that they can assimilate into our culture and assimilate into our business processes that much faster. Right, because so you're going to have imposter syndrome, right? That's going to last oh, for a long time. Correct, correct. And so I'll never forget, like, my first week, I had a sense of probably feeling overwhelmed of, like, there's so many terms, so many people that I've met. I don't know who's going where. Uh, but after probably three to four months and really lowering the waterline on myself, so that and so when I say lowering the waterline, I'm talking about being vulnerable in who I am. So when I joined NASCAR, I created a, a get to know you slide. Uh, and it was like John, sort of like John Ferguson in one minute. And on the left side, I had who I was as a professional, where I went to school, uh, where I've worked. And on the other side of the PowerPoint slide, I had who I am just on a personal front. So I had a picture of my daughters. I had just graduated from Howard University with my MBA. I'm a big brother fan. And so I, I, I ride bikes, I run, I, I, I can bake a pound cake. So I put those images out there, but it allowed people as I was going through these department meetings of introducing myself to say, oh, he watches Big Brother. Oh, 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 he went to Howard. I did too. So now we had a connective tissue. So, you know, did I remember meeting them in this 300 person meeting? Maybe not. But when they saw me, they had something that they could connect with me on. Like, hey, I love watching Big Brother. You watching this season? So I've been able to really build relationships and connective tissue because I gave them something to know about me. Also, as a leader, when you lower that waterline on yourself, nine times out of 10, the person will do the same with them. And so you now get to understand who they are because you've opened the door for that type of rapport. Yeah, I love that. Um, and that makes perfect sense. And I, and I get that from a relationship to relationship, but I'm curious back to the muscle memory of the organization. So knowing what you know, what can be implemented to organizations that are going to have someone like 
you leave and someone come in who's, who's going to have imposter syndrome. How do we scale that knowledge, that superpower that you left with? How do you make sure that it stays in the organization? Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think for, um, well, there's just, there's some of that will be, will be left off. That's just, that's just part of people coming and going. But I think from an HR perspective, we should focus on making sure that there is a, uh, things you need to know playbook. And that is what I'm on a mission to sort of create coming out of my first year. And so my, my thought process here is that I will go back and set up uh, Zoom calls or in-person meetings or a survey, and I'll do it by month. So everyone that started in May, they're going to get this link. They're going to get this invitation. We're going to discuss what are the top five things you wish you would have known when you joined NASCAR? And if I can boil that down and I do that for a year, I should have a good playbook that we can then leverage and provide to new hires when they join the organization. So you're building this real time. You're, you're going to build this through people in the I wish list and then, yes. and then execute. I love that. And then that's going to have a whole list of, because you're right, you, you know, as a single individual, you have your perspective, but someone from accounting has their perspective and a driver has their perspective or however that works. Right. And so that's a really interesting project. No, and I, I, and, and then the new hires appreciate it. Uh, because we've been able to bond on, you know, for example, like our credentials when you go to a race is sometimes like, okay, here's your credential. And you're like, well, what does this mean? Do I have access to this? Do I have access to that? And so we've bonded in that. So they're really excited to participate and engage there too, because they want to contribute to the process. They want to contribute to whoever's coming in behind them, you know, understanding what these acronyms are much faster than they did. John, I'm curious, how do you envision the execution of that? So you collect the information, uh, what, what's your vision of this from an execution standpoint? I joined NASCAR in three years from now. Am I going through a learning management system modules? What, do you, what are you seeing? Has this scaled? I think initially it's just going to be like a, a, a one page or a two page. Here's a document. Uh, it's going to point you to a lot of resources that you may not instinctively know your first day, first week. Um, and then from there, we probably have a NASCAR university program. So it could be this uh, sort of training module that could come out of that. But I also believe that when you join an organization and NASCAR is huge, I think sometimes people just see us as what you see on, you know, race day. We're much larger than that. We have racing electronics. We have a production team. We have, you know, full business entities and we have an international group. So we're, we are huge research and development. We do a lot. So it's a How lot to staff? consume. John, How many staff? Yeah. Uh, we have about, you know, 1,300 or so full-time employees. So we're very robust. And then they're spread across the United States. Wow. Uh, and so, so with that, um, I, I see this becoming a, a class of sorts that people could tap into. But I also believe it's an opportunity to have recent new hires or people that have been here for at least a year within that you know, one year to two year mark participate in that discussion. Because I don't want it to be something that just HR is leading. I want to have those those you know, new hires that had just hit their anniversary come into that conversation and share some of their insights as well, because then it allows them to get exposure. It allows the, the, the new hires, the true new hire, to then have a relationship with someone that they can relate to, because we just did this exact cycle that you're going through, and we're here to support you. So it, right. it starts off with a one or two pager, and then we could scale it into sort of a course or a community of sorts to support those people as they onboard in the organization. Well, good for you. It sounds like one, a, a very meaningful project that's going to add value to lots of future, well, current, because people are going to participate in the, in the content and then future employees. And I always say, look, I mean, I, my perspective maybe is wrong, maybe not for everybody, but how incredible is it to leave a stake 
behind, you know? So whatever happens to you next, that you that, like the organization was not the same. John Ferguson comes in and, and can help build this thing out and execute. And that's just a nice shingle to leave. If that makes sense. Is that, is that a, do you see that as a proud moment or not? It's like, whatever, it's just my job. No, I see it as a proud moment. And I learned that from a leader that I worked with at Hyatt. I'll never forget the conversation we had. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, you always want to be intentional. What will be your footprint when you leave that organization? What yeah. will be your footprint? And I, and I, I know that uh, when I left Monumental Sports Entertainment, I left a footprint. You know, I am one of one and everyone else is one of one, but I made that place, uh, I would like to believe, that I made that place better and that some of those processes that we were able to implement and just scale and grow uh, as a unit uh, are things that uh, someone else that came in behind me could build from and continue to leverage. And I know that you, and I feel like this is a personal BHAG, but the places that you work, you want them to be the best places to work on the planet. Would that be accurate? Yes, yes. Right? Big goal. So, but how do you, how do you, um, because, you know, it's funny, I challenge the golden rule. The, you know, you grow up and they say, treat those as you would like to be treated. And I think that's BS. I actually think it's treat those as they would like to be treated. I agree. Right? So how do you take that lens? How, you know, because because that's a big thing. You, you, you're, you're taking on a, um, a, you know, a big nugget here. NASCAR to be one of the best places you can work on the planet. And then how do you, how do you take all that information and say, because everyone's got very different views of what the best place is going to look like. I'm just mm -hmm. curious your thoughts on that. Uh, yes. So I think when I go into a place as in, in leading and in working in the HR space, two things, best place to work, the best place to work, and then also a great place to be from. I think that signals two important things. Great place to work is that I enjoyed my time there. Uh, I was invested in, I was allowed to grow, but a best place to be from signals that it was a great landing or springboard for my next opportunity. I, I think sometimes specifically in sports, it's, it's a small cohort of people that are kind of going from team to team or from league to league. Uh, but sometimes you can be in this place because you've wanted to work for X team your entire life. You're a lifelong fan, but there could come a point where, you know, those above you, they, they've worked and they're growing in their career, but they're not moving on from that position. Or maybe the, the growth opportunity isn't coming at a pace that you want. And I think that's where you leverage the power of that brand to go possibly external, continue to grow. And then guess what? It was a great place to be from, but then there's always that boomerang factor. You can come back, you know, go grow, get new muscles, because I think that I would encourage everyone. I think there's a level of uh, that I've learned going to different places and understanding how they do business. If you want to be really robust in your career and the experiences, because when I was at Monumental, I knew the Monumental way. But now that I'm at NASCAR, I'm being open to a whole new way of thinking and approaching things. And there's they complement each other. So I'm able to think about some ways in which we approach things at Monumental, but now incorporate the things I've learned at NASCAR. I'm like, whoa, I have so much more insight uh, to the power of, of, of the scope that I take up, but also just the whole organization, how we can approach and tackle problems. So great place to work and a great place to be from are, are two key pillars for me. And do you feel like that uh, in your past um chapters hyatt and msc great place to be from yes definitely definitely that's excellent that's great and now i i know you you talk about the power of i think it's yet or not yet power of yet y-e-t the power yeah. of yet so walk us through that i like this concept so the power of yet really goes uh or plays back into where i learned to be a manager uh 
where I really perfected, I wouldn't even say perfected, where I learned to be the to be a better leader of people. And that came down to my two daughters, Maddie and Olivia. Um, understanding that they are two different people and how I approach them has to be different. And so that goes back to treat people how they want to be treated. I, I had a greater understanding of leading people because at one point I might've been like, no, one size fits all, this is how we're doing it. But understanding that I had to approach my two daughters very differently. So my oldest Maddie, she is um, she is all about, you know, you can talk to her pretty directly. Uh, and then my youngest, if you say like, you didn't clean up your room, she's like, you don't like me and you don't love me. And I'm like, no, that's not at all what I'm saying, but, but you, you left a mess. Uh, and so understanding and applying that to the, the teams that I lead and the organizations that I support and the power of yet. So the power of yet is really uh, an educational concept. And I think Sesame Street probably, you know, launched some of it. And it's the concept, you know, I may have, you know, we're doing something with my daughter and we're practicing reading or math. And she's like, daddy, this is too hard. I can't do this. You cannot do it yet. And if we keep thinking about the power of yet, we're really instilling a growth mindset. You can have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. Growth mindset means that I can practice and I can learn and I can do anything that is put in front of me. Fixed mindset is like, these are the skills I have and I can't change. Either I'm good at it or I'm bad at it. The power of yet really speaks into to building culture. It really speaks into motivating people. It really speaks into helping your organization elevate to the next level. So the power of yet, it means take that risk, continue to practice, be informed by your failures. Failure is the best opportunity uh, to learn and do more. So fail fast, fail forward, but keep moving. Let me let me ask you this, because I love that, but I was just trying to think internally of where I might've been at a crossroad. And I think back to, okay, so, so I'm dyslexic. Really finances are really tough for me. You know, I'm at a place where I, I feel like I do a few things really well and I wanna get better at those things. But I also feel like, I could be caught in some cases, and, and I'm going to go back to finance. You know, this is maybe four or five years ago. I was entering a new business. I'm in the affordable housing space too with a, a company called Vita. And I thought, you know, we're, we're doing multi, multi-million dollar deals. I should really, I need to get a better handle on finance and, and I'll need to go back to basics. And, and I feel like at that point, I was kind of in this, I don't have the skill yet. And then I, I, I actually backed away. I was going to take courses. And, and then I thought, you know, well, that's not where my skill set is. I'm, I'm always going to be able to trust and hire someone who's better at that than me. What do you, what do you think that balances before we yet too many things that, that then become, you know, turn us away from focus? Like this story, I, I, would, I think even upon reflection, I made the right move to say, let me go back to my lane here of where I'm really good and I can yet get better at these things. What, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that, John? I think as you, as you grow professionally and personally, uh, you have to know when is it better for me to hire someone or to delegate that task? Because you have to think about your own sort of ability to achieve what you're setting out for yourself. So whatever those goals are. So I could learn to go master this finance and do my own financing for my organization. But is that going to help grow the organization and scale it at the pace in which it needs to do? The reason why we have all these different functions in the organization is because we all don't need to be experts in those particular areas. So you think about if someone can do it faster than me, consider hiring someone or delegating. If someone can do it better than me, consider hiring someone and delegating it or delegating it simply because we don't need to be a master of everything. But I think you do want to have enough a business acumen to, to sort of 
have a conversation and a dialogue around those subjects. So it sounds like to get your yet right, you need to have what we talked about earlier, some pretty good self-awareness and some objectivity. Correct. I would totally agree. Mm, interesting. John, let's, let's pivot over to the big topic, the quiet quitting. You know, when, I feel like the topic's gone from great resignation to quiet quitting. What are, your, you know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What's, let's, let's get into that. Yeah, so um, I have to give this plug here. If you are not on TikTok, you should get on TikTok. TikTok gives you advice on anything and everything from from HR to to cooking to to, it's more than just dancing. I think a lot of people default to like it's where the kids are, Uh, but there's a lot of valuable resources. So quiet quitting, the concept actually was birthed from TikTok. There was a TikTok video that went viral and essentially a, a gentleman was saying, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm, t- what I, the core baseline of my job, nothing more, nothing less. And it's really a, a concept of, of going against hustle, hustle culture. Uh, like, you know, I got to work 20 hours a day. I need to go to every social event. Uh, I've always been a firm believer uh, in that establishing healthy boundaries. I also think that quiet quitting is talking about boundary setting, but I don't necessarily think that quiet quitting isn't, is synonymous with this with this concept of quitting your job i think it's a synonymous with setting boundaries and synonymous with uh rejecting hustle hustle culture so i i think it's an interesting concept it's new it's still being discussed uh but i don't think it's something that uh the act of it is new people have you you always right. have your people that you may call a lifer label right? is new yeah, the labeling's new, but you've had life. It's like, nope, Tommy's Tommy's good where he is. He enjoys it. Nothing more, nothing less. He's a, he, he is steady in his role. And you need individuals like that in your organization that are steady in their role and consistent. But then you're going to have some people who come in, they're driven. They they're, they have a hustle, hustle mentality. Like, I'm coming in. I want to maximize this opportunity. How do I get to the next? So I think there's a balance for both to, to exist. But no matter if you're a hustler or you're just kind of the steady eddy, I, I go back to, you know, this thesis that, you know, and, and, and there's a book called Nine Lies About Work. We've had Ashley Goodall and Marcus Buckingham. They wrote this work, this book, and it's, I, I really liked it. it. I like books that I thought left and now you've challenged me and now I believe right. And so there was a lot of that. It was the nine lies about work. And one of the lies was that people care about the company they work for. Now, of course, I read that and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm Ron Lovett. They love to work, you know, all this BS. And then you read into it and it says people don't. They don't care. If you, if your dream was to work for Google or NASCAR and you get there and you don't love your leader and your team or what you do, then you're, you're probably, and I'm going to use that label, you're going to be a quiet quitter, right? It doesn't matter that it's Google. Don't like the leader. That's a problem or I don't like the culture slash team, or I don't like what I do every day over the majority. It's, it's an energy drainer. It's death by a thousand cuts. That's what we're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. I think quiet quitting does, does touch on that. And some people will quietly quit right. uh, and they will start pursuing. So that extra time that they may have invested in growing in that space, they're investing in, in building out their exit strategy. And right. I think that's very important. I have seen some employees that I've encountered that I, that they have allowed themselves to become toxic because maybe they never adopted this concept of quiet quitting. And I think they see Mm. that role that they're in as the only opportunity available to them. I at times have been the HR leader that says, maybe it's time to look at something different. 
and I have to outside of the organization, outside of the organization. And, you know, when I look at back at my own career, uh, there was probably a time where I might have been quiet quitting and I, and I wasn't sure of what it was or what I was feeling. And my wife really opened. She was like, you know, there's there, there's tons of roles out here. Like you don't have to be so frustrated about this moment. Life is about growing and evolving and going to your next chapter, experiencing something new. And so that really stood out to me. So I would tell people, don't get complacent. You know, some some seasons or all seasons are going to come to an end. But you should be informed on when you think that season is nearing an end so you can start developing that exit strategy to get you to the next season where you feel fulfilled in the purpose and mission of the work that you're doing. Yeah, I I mean, two things. One, I love that message. Two, sounds like we need to have your wife on the podcast. Oh, she would she would love to be here. My wife's a professor at, at Howard University. She is a thought leader. She really talks to the, the younger, the millennials and Gen Z. So she she informs me. You talk about having a coach. I have one at home. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, wait, so I was going to ask you this question. What is the question to find the quiet quitters? What are the questions we should be asking to find out if they're amongst the team? Because, you know, essentially we want to get out in front of that. And yeah, what, what do you think the question that we should be asking is or the process think, or the strategy? I think the thing is, do we want to get out in front of that? And so I'm, I'm not sure because there's people coming and going from an organization all the time. I think the only time you would uh, possibly identify a quiet quitter is if there was something dramatic that flipped in how they were showing up in the workplace. It's funny. I think we, uh, I, I think this is an interesting topic because I think we do. And the only reason I say that is because, I mean, time just flies so fast. So if you were a quiet quitter working for me, John, I would want to know, because if I know that I can help you outside, I could help you faster versus mm-hmm. because I don't control, because I do believe what you said earlier, which is if you're a quiet quitter and you don't lean into that, um, you could become toxic. And so I think as leaders, we have to be cautious of that because that is, there's not a straight line there in mm-hmm. when someone becomes toxic. So the question we're asking, and I'm curious what you think of this question, is one of the key questions we're putting out to our team in the next quarter is, knowing what you know about this company and this and your role, would you be excited to reapply? Mm-hmm. And I feel like, now that was already pushed out, but I feel like that should bring out some, if there's a quiet quitter, because, and the other reason I want to know is because it's, I feel like, and this is probably selfish as a leader of organization, it's not just about you. It's about the organization and me. Mm-hmm. I need, there's, there's going to be a look in the mirror moment, or I hope there is to be right. Maybe you're a quiet quitter because how your team's treating you. Maybe you're a quiet mm-hmm. quitter because we aren't using your skills that you were born to put on, you were put on this planet for, and we're just not seeing that. And so I feel like there is an opportunity. We should ask, we should be trying to pull that out. What are your thoughts? I, I don't disagree. Um, and I think if you have a rapport with your team, you will, you will start to observe that. I think you should also have intentional meetings and in, in spaces and time where we're just talking about John and Ron. Yeah. Less about the business, but John and Ron. Because mm-hmm. again, lowering that waterline, I understand what may be happening to you outside of the work. And then I can say, mm, I can see how work is possibly starting to conflict with that. But if you open up those moments where help me understand, tell me more, and then you really sit back and listen, you can figure out or get a signal to some of those nuances that may be coming up. Um, So I think it's important just to have that dialogue and making sure you're creating space and time for that. The other thing is you have some people who just are more reserved in the workplace. So you can ask all these questions nine times out of 10. I can't 
you know, there are a few people that will give you honest feedback when you say, Ron, how would you pitch this company to someone else or would you reapply? And there are others that are like, I'm not telling you that because if I say, Ron, I'm not happy here and I'm looking for another job. There's also this fear that they have that, well, maybe if I told Ron this, maybe now he's going to fast track this and then like, I, I, I want to be in control. What we are all ultimately looking for is psychological safety. Right. And so I'm not going to wave a flag that I think may put me in an unsafe environment. But if we have had this rapport and relationship where I can show that level of vulnerability to my manager and say, I'm just not happy in this role anymore. And then we can have that conversation mm-hmm. to figure out, OK, well, where's a stretch assignment? How can we grow and develop you here? Or if it ultimately comes out that like, hey, I can see your frustration and I know some really awesome opportunities that I'd like to connect you with beyond the walls of this place. Are you open to that? But that takes a level of trust that most people haven't been able to fine tune in the workplace. Uh, look, I agree. And I also think about autonomy. So let's go through this. We're going to push this this uh, this questionnaire, the survey out in the next quarter. So we will allow people to do it anonymously mm-hmm. or not. Now, the, the strategy there, it may not be what you think. You know, yes, at, 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 at the surface level, maybe there's going to be people that are more comfortable to be honest if it's anonymous, right? You'd logically mm-hmm. think that. But as a leader, that's going to tell me that we have a problem. So let's just say there was 10 people or we, we've got 30, you know, we have 50, I guess. But let's just go to 10 and five fill it out anonymously. That to me is a problem that we don't have the safety that we need because people don't want to be honest. I've got to work on something different versus even mm-hmm. the information in there at that point, if that makes sense, you know? We just went through this. Um, I had a, a coworker say, "Look, can you can you give me some feedback from my team right now?" And so I sent her an email to you know the folks that work closely with him and said, "Hey, what should he start doing? What should he stop doing? What should he continue to do?" You know the exercise, right? Yes, I love that three minute feedback. I love the concept. But so it's interesting though. The reason I sent that out to the team is because I felt that he's going to get pretty good feedback coming back to me. And it was mm-hmm. very interesting because some people say, look, I'm going to send it directly to him because I don't want this to be this weird thing. And I'd say, hey, great. No, send it to me, though, because I coach a mentor. So I'm, I'm looking for information, too. But feel free to send it direct. Others would send it to me and say, yeah, I felt really weird about that. Like, I, am I, you know, what do I do? And I said, no, well, then send it. Maybe you should send direct as well. Or sometimes people would send it direct and, and not really say anything where the person who got the feedback was like, wow, thanks. This is so great. And I said, you know, but you also may want to follow up these people directly and say, thank you for the feedback. Like there's all these micro opportunities to build relations within this one lane. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's a very complex. There isn't this two plus two equals four that a lot of companies try to find, you know, slide into. You nailed it. It's complex. So we just launched our engagement survey here at, at NASCAR and every, all of my years in HR, people are always skeptical of surveys. Is it really confidential? Or what are you going to do about the information? What are you going to do about the information? And so from our perspective, uh, when you're a larger organization, you do want the survey to be uh, confidential. I think that just addresses option concern. Option or not, John? Is it optional uh, or not? I don't think it needs to be optional, just from our perspective. I've never seen one that you had you could pick between the two because we're scaling it to a large group. So it's, it's not optional. Or it's, you, don't, you can't say, I want to identify myself. I nine times out of 10 believe the people that want to identify themselves, you already know how they feel. They've already had these conversations. They're the people that I would imagine as a leader, you tap into them to help you understand what other people are thinking. 
because they they have whatever report they're already outspoken they don't mind sharing to you direct great they're naturally going to do that whether they do it on an anonymous survey or come to your office and say hey ron this is what's going on uh, but I think when you want to get the, the the larger organization, I think placing that there is just, a, a, it allows them to have, again, psychological safety. And so I'd, I'd rather just say it's anonymous, which it is. But I also want to go against the notion, so many employees are so caught up, it's not anonymous. They'll know it's, we, we, it doesn't benefit me to know that it was Ron who said that, you know, John is not a good leader. But the feedback, it lets me know that I have some areas to improve on, and that's what we want the most. Feedback is a gift. And to your point, then you need to act on the feedback. I'm very proud to say that nine out of 10 of our employees did their survey here at NASCAR. That is enormous. Excellent. That is huge success. But now guess what? The real work begins. We need to act on that. And so- a theme? If, Can you share a theme, John? What was the, we've got some work to do over here. Uh, I think the biggest opportunity was action. The biggest opportunity we saw was action. I think, you know, as a new leader to the HR space, uh, I was able to bring in sort of a, a, a fresh sense uh, or, or uh, experience for some, because some people are like, ah, you know, I've done these surveys in the past, nothing really comes of it. But I, I walk the halls of every, all of our offices, like, hey, I really want you to do this survey because with your feedback, we can continue to elevate the employee experience. I believe that the employee experience should model the fan experience. There shouldn't be some drastic difference. And so with that, I need you to help me get there. I'm a new leader in this space. I, I need your input. And so having that, the next thing is I need to do is make sure that we are acting on it. And then we create avenues to reassess in six months, what are we looking like? And then that comes down to holding our leaders accountable. It goes back to, you know, I, I, I equate leadership to improvement. Management is maintenance. So if you're a leader in this organization, you have an obligation to improve. Improve yourself, improve your department, improve the company. Improvement, leadership is baked in improvement. And so this survey allows us to see the areas in which we need to improve, and we owe it to our employees to address them. And sorry, John, let me go back to say that again, leadership and the, go back to this theory. Again. So uh, so a good friend of mine, Steve McClatchy, he does his personal leadership and time management training, and he really boils down the fundamentals of, of, of sort of leadership and management. Leadership is, is rooted in improvement. So that means, and also when you say improvement, that means that anybody can be a leader. Okay. And then when you say management, management is maintenance. It's managing the day-to-day, -day, the status quo. Like we're, so you're not putting we people know in these to. buckets. You're talking about the function of these two things. The function of these two things. Got yes. it. Got it. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, and so if you are a leader in this organization by title or just by your own uh, ability to help us improve, let's tap into that. And so if people have provided us with the feedback, we all, everyone owns company culture. Um, I, I typically am very clear on that because sometimes it comes in, it's like, well, the head of HR owns company culture. There is no way I can own company culture uh, single-handedly because I don't have the opportunity to know everyone in, in, in that one-to-one -one relationship to really impact company culture that way. And so I need a team of people to help us execute that. So when that ownership is placed on all of us, we all, we all take up space in moving that lever forward. So course yeah john what else haven't we talked about that you're thinking about that you're reading about that you're that you're noodling around or socializing as ideas or opportunities within the business what else that we haven't talked about i think i would i would touch on um i think one thing that i've been toiling with in coming into a, a, a new organization and, and being a new leader is just being a new leader in a new organization 
and so really giving some deep thought and, and how do you approach that? What are some best practices? Because I've seen some leaders who haven't been successful in entering a new space. Um, and I've seen other leaders that have been. And so I think, you know, just for me personally, that's where I want to give some thought and collaboration and figure out some, some advice to those coming into those spaces, because you have to, A, understand your peers, you have to understand the organization, but then get socialized into that business process and business cycle. So it's, it's interesting. Um, I'd love to share a quick little story that may or may not be helpful here, but we had uh, our chief um, operating officer joined the company. This is not too long ago. And what our strategy was, was for him to not make any decisions for, I think it was a one month period, like do not make any decisions. What do we want you to do is just absorb, build relationships because you, when you make a decision today, you don't have the full picture. You're going to make a decision and then find out later that that just wasn't going to work. And then you're going to say this organization doesn't support me, that, that might go in the wrong place. So this theory of when when new individuals are joining, they might have to, you know, A plus B equals C because they're an accountant or something. But to make a decision, to make a change, we're saying don't do that for a one month period. Don't don't pull any levers here. Just and there's no pressure for you because you came from MSE to come in here and start frigging shaking things up. Chill out. Let's just let's just let's look. Let's get the whole picture first. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a great approach. Um, I think it allows the leader. Uh, to really sit in the seat of being a student of the organization. And I think that's important. Um, I actually, I, I just jotted it down. I think that's something that every organization should try to be in, uh, intentional on because when you're coming in, A, you're just consuming a lot. Uh, the way I sort of took it is that I always say, well, you guys were existing before I arrived. So right. what would be the recommendation here? Because if it's week two for me, this, you know, you would have made this decision with or without me help me understand uh, the, 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 the concerns or your recommendation. Because what I have learned is that, you know, every organization has its nuances. So you're like, hey, this is the path we should take, not knowing that they've done that path, that wasn't the path. And then, you know, you're sitting over here ready to charge forward and everyone's like, what do you, why? And so right. I, think that's, I think that's fair and I think it's appropriate. I think it's a good best practice. And the other thing I noticed in that was that, pressure came up because there's pressure when you come in with imposter syndrome, these insecurities of like, you're pulling levers, right? So there was this, I could feel the, the our last two leaders that came in, uh, one in ops, one in finance, there was this, oh, okay, great. Thanks. I like, I really appreciate you not expecting me based on my previous role to come in and shake this thing up right away. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 that was an unknown outcome of that strategy. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. one thing I, I practice asking is what do I not know? So you're asking me to make this decision. What is our past practice and what do I not know? Mm, great question. Great question. Past practice is key. Like what have we already tried before I come in thinking I have some great idea but what do I not know? What questions have I not asked? Let's, let's sit there in that moment for a second. Mm -hmm. That's great. John, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really have enjoyed this. I've got a full page of notes uh, myself. And so one, thanks for taking the time. It sounds like a busy time where you are right now. Is it in the middle of NASCARing or what's going on down there? Yeah, so we're getting ready to wrap up our, our, our regular season and head into playoffs. So the Daytona, uh, Coke, uh, uh, zero sugar 400 is the end of our regular season race uh, racing for the cup series and then we'll head into playoffs so there's a lot on the line it will take place tomorrow so there's a lot of energy right now and a lot of excitement uh, so we're we're really excited for the path forward 
I can see that and feel that even over Zoom with you, John. So look, thank you so much. Thanks for the work you're doing. Uh, thanks for your counsel today. You have some great strategic uh, initiatives and experience that obviously is adding a ton of value uh, there at NASCAR. And I'm sure people are enjoying uh, to get to know you over the past year and work with you. And so, yeah, thanks so much. I really pre appreciate your time today. Uh, anytime. And thank you so much for the opportunity to join you here on, uh, on your podcast. I look forward to continuing the dialogue in other spaces. Absolutely. Thanks, John. For more information about John Ferguson, please follow him on LinkedIn. To learn more about our books or the Scaling Culture Masterclass online, please go to scalingculture.org. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a comment and share the podcast with one of your friends or colleagues. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.